Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 14. We are in a series right now called What to Expect in 2023. And um, this is week five. Well, I guess it might be week six if we include uh, Pastor Brandon's sermon last week. But for, for what I've preached, it's the fifth week. And we, we've been talking about different things that kind of we see coming up in 2023 and beyond. Again, these are not prophetic things like, oh, this is going to happen. This is just, you know, so, this is just us paying attention and going, what's happening? What, what's happening in our world? And, and as uh, we pastor this church and try to lead in the kingdom of God, you know, in the way that he's called us, just observing what is going on and what type of things do we need to prepare for and be ready for. So one of the things, we've talked about so many, it's all on our website, it's all on our YouTube channel, you can go back and catch up, and we've talked about kind of a different one each week. And what, what I wanted to talk to you about this week is, I'm expecting that uh, it's going to become more costly to serve God than it has been in the past for, for believers. Um, you know, I, I think America is probably one of the nations where it has cost us the least to serve God, at least in our generation. It, for a long time, for decades in this country, it's been very easy to serve God. And it doesn't really cost us that much. I mean, for a lot of people, they could, they could, they could come to Christ and almost experience zero persecution or, or zero difficulty from the world surrounding them, and almost not even really be able to tell a difference for decades. How many of you have sensed that changing just a little bit? Not, not saying it's, you know, we're not being persecuted, we're not, there's no physical harm or anything like that, but just through the last couple decades, there's been a change in this, and I'm expecting as we go forward this to increase even, even more. Now, um, if you came to Christ and it didn't cost you anything, this is part of the problem. If you came to Christ and it, and it didn't really cost you anything, you may start to have a problem when it starts to cost you something. Because the mentality can almost be, well, this isn't really what I signed up for. I didn't realize it was going to be this. And I, and I think sometimes even churches and pastors have been at fault for the way we've communicated it. You know, almost like, hey, come to God and everything in your life is just going to magically get better. Almost like it's a magic pill. That's really not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament, quite frankly, is come to Christ and it will cost you everything. And, and if you didn't come to Christ under that, those, you know, that understanding, then when Christianity actually starts to cost you something, you may, you may bail out. You may not want to be part of it. You may not fare very well when it starts to cost you something. Have you ever been part of something that, you know, you signed up, you were excited for it, uh, and then you started to realize all of the costs and all of the sacrifice involved. And there, there, there comes that critical moment where there's what I'm getting out of it, then there's what it's costing me, and at some point the pendulum has, has swung, and it's costing me way more than I'm getting out of it, and so I'm out. Have you ever had those types of experiences? I know I had one fairly recently. My kids and I, we, we were for several months, we were doing jujitsu. Now, I don't know what the practical application of for jujitsu is in a pastor's life. I haven't been in a physical altercation since I was in the eighth grade, but, but, but uh, it was something for us to do as a family. It was, you know, good physical 
exercise and things like that, and I, and I really was enjoying it. We were, we were having a good time. But it was very expensive financially, number one. And, hey, look, if you want to try Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm all for it. Go. It was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. But it was very expensive, first of all. Secondly, uh, the time. I didn't like the time. It was so late in the evening. We had to go late. I wasn't getting home till like, 9 o'clock. It just it wasn't working with my schedule. And then I started getting injured. I started, you know, I, I am 40, but I don't feel 40 until I go to jiu-jitsu. Then I, so I started tweaking stuff here and there. I'm limping, walking around. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm pastor in a church. I'm not, I'm not you know, going to be in combat anytime soon. What is, the, what is the point of this? So at a certain point, though, all of those things kind of came together to go, this isn't worth it anymore. Now, if... So, so to someone who's really in the jujitsu community, like this is their life, you know, I'm like a sellout, you know, it's like this, what's this guy, you, you came for a few months and now you're out. Exactly. Well, that's a lot of how it is in, in the church world sometimes. People, they're just trying it out. You know, we're just coming, oh, my friends go there, they invited me. That's cool. Come, come check it out. Uh, maybe you grew up hearing about Jesus. Maybe you were in a Sunday school, you know, maybe you want to give church a try. You want to give God a try. But at some point, if it doesn't switch to, I'm an all-out, sold-out, you know, child of God, and this is my life, you're, you're in that, that zone where <clears throat> when it starts costing you too much, you may not feel that it's worth it anymore. And this is why Jesus, when, when he invited people to follow him, he didn't try to sell Christianity. You know what I mean? He didn't try to package it. He didn't try to market it. He didn't try to present Christianity like the blessed life. You know, you come to God, your finances are going to improve, your marriage is going to improve, your health is going to improve, everything's going to improve. That's not how Jesus packaged Christianity. I know sometimes that's how we package Christianity because there's an element of that that's true, right? There's an element of that. I mean, I could, my life has absolutely improved as a Christian. However, that's not how Jesus packaged Christianity. Jesus packaged Christianity... <clears throat> As if it were going to be extremely costly. And I, and I worry sometimes that Christians have not prepared themselves for the cost of serving God. And, and sometimes I look at Christians that are trying to follow God. And we don't want to give up. We don't want to give up maybe a, a Netflix series that we shouldn't be watching because you know, it, it would grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to give that up because we enjoy it so much and we want to be entertained. We won't even give up that. How are you going to give up something really valuable for God then? No, Christianity, it's going to cost you something. And if you, and if you don't want it to cost you anything, I question whether or not you're walking with the Lord truly because you, you haven't really died to some things. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. This first phrase, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, this is way different than how we present the gospel oftentimes. So think about what Jesus is saying here. Because a lot of what, how we think in Christianity is, well, Jesus paid it all. We even have that song, Jesus paid it all, which I love that song. I love the song. And it's true in, in what they're talking about. Jesus paid it all as far as the cost and the penalty of sin. But does that mean you have nothing to pay? 
Does that mean that there's no cost to you, to me? Well, absolutely not. Let's go back to the jujitsu example since we're having so much fun with that. If someone paid for me to go to jujitsu, they paid it all. Well, it's not over. I, I still have to show up. I still have to do the work. I still have to endure the, the pain. I still have to go through a lot. It's still going to be very costly to me just because they paid the membership. I still have a lot of work to do on my end. And that's how Christianity is. Yes, Jesus paid it all as far as your entrance into heaven. He paid it all and you owe nothing as far as your sin. Your sin's been forgiven and paid for. You could have never paid it. He paid it. Jesus paid it all. But notice this statement. Whoever does not bear his own cross... And come after me cannot be my disciple. I don't think a lot of Christians have realized that Jesus wasn't the only one that had a calling to bear the cross. And it's it's such a revolutionary concept because when you think about the cross and what it was, Jesus was crucified on that cross. Why would he use that imagery to his disciples? Remember, he hadn't been crucified at this point. His disciples didn't even know he was going to be crucified at this point. But living in that culture, that Roman, you know, dominated culture, they knew what crucifixion was. And so he made this statement to him. He said, listen, I'm not the only one called to carry a cross. You are called to carry a cross as well. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. But before you came to Christ, did you sit down and count the cost? Did you, did you think about what is this going to cost me in my, my relationships, my friendships, my dating habits, my entertainment habits, my eating and drinking habits? What, how is this going to cost me? See, in America... We're counting a different set of costs because it's not like we live in Iran or North Korea where it could cost you literally everything. Your own parents could kill you by making that decision. So in that context, you can imagine counting the cost. Yeah, because if somebody presents the gospel to you, you your mind begins to go, wait a minute, uh, I could be beheaded for this. So I really need to think, I really need to know, is this what I want to do? I really need to know this is real. I really need to know the Bible is the only and absolute truth because I can't risk being beheaded and following God for something that's not true, for something that's not real, for something that I don't want to give my whole life to. But see, that's not how a lot of Christians came to Christ in America. They didn't come to Christ counting the cost. They just came to Christ because they heard they were, it was emotional. Maybe they heard a good sermon you know, back in the day, one of the churches I worked at, uh, they did a big production called Beyond the Grave. Uh, there's, very, there's a lot of similar ones. Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames is another one. That, but anyway, the whole production is about presenting hell and heaven in very, very eye-opening, real, real terms. And I've been a part probably of two or three churches that have done similar productions. And uh, there was one in Tulsa. That, the biggest one I'd ever seen was in Tulsa. It was called The Nightmare. And it was a whole experience that went on for like 30 days around Halloween. What would happen is, and, and I've seen this at every one of these events, is thousands of people would come to Christ. Now, I'm not belittling it because we don't know the individual person that makes a choice. 
But this is what I would see of working at those places. Thousands of people would literally have the hell scared right out of them and they would come to Christ. Because you would, you, would, you would go to hell. I mean, you would be there. The production was there. Satan was there. It was like in your face. And they would have that experience. It was a very emotional experience. And the next week or two weeks, we wouldn't see almost any of those people in church. Why? Because it was just an emotional decision that they made versus I'm giving my life to Christ, having counted the cost and laid everything down on the altar and given it to Christ. That's different. See, if you have an emotional experience and you come and you go, yeah, I don't want to go to hell. I want to live for God. And then they start, okay, well, it's going to cost you this. It's going to cost you this. This is what it looks like to serve God. This is what it looks like to give everything up. Then you go, whoa, 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 hold on. I, I didn't know it was going to cost me all that. And plus, you know, a little bit of that emotion is wearing off now. And I might be okay where I was at. This is why Jesus explained you need to count the cost before you come to Christ. So he said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. See, I think we are in a counting the cost season right now as the church in America. We're not at a place where it's that costly yet, but we're also not where it was. So we're we're in this season where we should be doing exactly what Jesus is saying. If you're a Christian right now in 2023, you should be looking at your life and, and your family and your job and your place in America You should be looking and you should be counting the cost, looking forward to the next 10 years, going, what might it cost me to be a Christian? What could it cost me to be a believer and to stand for Jesus Christ in the next decades that are are coming up? See, in, in the church world, things move in a cyclical, season like pattern. And let me explain what I mean. You have the the ideal season for the church is summer. We're going, to, we're going to use summer as that example. In summer, everything is, is, is hot, it's busting out. You know, that's like revival. It's just everything is good, glorious. There's, the churches are packed, the churches are filled, prayers are getting answered. It's like you're in revival. It's just a beautiful time. Some of you have experienced that. I know even in my lifetime I've experienced that. After a summer season in the church, it goes into fall. And what do you see then? You see... It's a dying off. Attendance is dwindling. People aren't into church as much. It's a little bit more of a struggle, a little bit more work, a little bit more sacrifice. The passion has waned a little bit. You're in that fall season. Then it can enter into a winter season. What does a winter season for the church look like? Well, it looks like communist Russia. It's bad. Okay, the light of the gospel is almost completely stamped out. Think the Middle Ages. Okay, it's, it's bad. You know, everyone's atheist, everyone's agnostic. The, the Christians are few and far between, and the, the price is just so, so high to live for God. Then comes around the spring. And what's the spring? Well, things are starting to look up. There's, there's, there's a little flicker here, a little flicker there. This little group is gathering. This little group is gathering and praying, and the church is starting to lift, and you're headed back towards that summer season. If you study church history, you will see this pattern over and over and over and over and over and over again. You, you've never seen, or I mean, you look through church history, you will never see a church, the, the church of Jesus Christ, enter into a summer season and just never leave. They just stay in summer, you know, perpetually for hundreds of years. 
there's this, even in the scripture, you see this in the book of Judges. They would repent. They would, they, God would deliver them. They would come back to God. They would experience revival. Then they would eventually fall away. They would start sinning. They would rebel against God. They would reap the consequences of it. They would end up in a really bad spot. They would repent. God would set them free. They would, it would just go over and over again like that. My point in telling you that is, if you look at America right now, what season are we in? Just answer that question within yourself. What, what, where do you see America, the church in America right now? To me, it's very clear that we are in a fall season. We're not in summer, that's for sure, but we're not in winter either. But when I, when I, when I look at it and as I've been involved in it my whole life, there's been a slow decline towards a winter season. Now, winter season does not mean that we're going to look like communist Russia. That, that hopefully will not get that bad. But winter for America, maybe. Winter for whatever, for whatever we are. I don't think we're there yet, but we're in that fall season. And that's why I say that currently in the American church, we're in a counting the cost season. In the fall is the time to count the cost and go, this is where we're headed. Okay, this is what Christianity might look like in 10 years. So I need to decide how I'm going to live. And I need to decide if I'm ready to walk through that. Am I prepared to live like that? Are you prepared if people that you have walked with closely are no longer following the Lord? Are you prepared to be part of your church if it's not just busting out the seams? Are you, are you prepared to make a sacrifice at your job or work to stand for, for morality, to stand for God, to stand for the Bible? You know, I've begun having conversations I've never had to have in my life with people in this church. I've, I've begun having conversations with many of you uh, over the last two years, I'd say really since COVID, where people have legitimately had to say, I'm in a unique situation where my faith and my job are conflicting. There, there are rules and standards at work that violate my faith. Things I can't say. Things I can't do. Th- think ways I have to talk and act that violate my faith. Well, that's what it means for Christianity to become more costly. And you may be faced. I hope, it, I hope not. But you could, as Christians, we could be faced at some point to choose, do I follow God or do I like the security of this, of this job? That could be. Hey, we're not there yet, okay? I'm not, oh, some of you maybe. I've talked to some of you that you were pretty close on a few things. But I'm not trying to get up and just do the scare thing of, oh, you know, this is how I'm, what, the whole point of this is to go, let's prepare because this might be where we're going. I'm not saying it's where we are now. I'm just saying you don't want it to, you don't want it to just creep up on you and you're totally unprepared. We want to know how things are moving and how they're progressing, right? And this is what Jesus told us to do. He said, count the cost. Be prepared to bear your own cross. And verse 29, he says, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Have you ever seen this? I've seen this a lot in... Uh, in the Christian world, uh, somebody comes to Christ and they make that bold declaration to everybody they know, all their friends, all their family, all their co-workers, they make that bold declaration, I'm different, I'm, a, I'm changed, I'm living for God now, everything's different. Two weeks later, they're not even following the Lord. This is what he's talking about right here. He says, otherwise, when you've laid the foundation and you're not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock 
This, ha- this happens in Christianity. What is that? That's a person who didn't count the cost. They got super emotional. They got super excited. Man, everything's different. It was just, it was all emotion. But they never sat down and counted the cost and said, God, no matter what it costs me, I'm following you. No matter what I have to give up, I'm following you. I'm sold out for this thing because I'm living for eternity and I'm not living for this life. And, and my life is no longer my own. When you hear the words of Paul the Apostle, you see he counted the cost. He, he said those words. He said, my life is not even my own. Who's Paul the Apostle? No, it's Christ living through me now. That's, a different, that's someone who's counted the cost. Verse 31. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not listen to these words now, this is it. Did Jesus, he, he means this, and this is, this is very strong. He says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If that was the way that we gave altar calls in church, I'm not sure that I would have very many people responding. (laughs) You can be a Christian this morning, but you have to renounce every single thing that you have in your life. But this is how Jesus said it. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has, all that he has, cannot, cannot be my disciple. Now, here's what I learned about the truth of this, of walking this out, both in my own life and, and, and with others, is that you don't actually give up everything in reality. In other words, he, do, he doesn't ask for everything. But in your heart, you renounce everything. In your heart, you're already dead to it. Now, he may not ever ask you to go to Africa and be a missionary. He may never ask you to sell your house and go do this for the gospel. He may never ask. But in your heart, you're already dead to it. So that if it ever, if it ever becomes an issue between following God and this... I was already dead to it. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. I've already renounced that. Now, it's easy to say that you've already renounced these things in your heart until you're asked to actually give them up and go. Because I know for me, I've been asked to move up, uproot my family, move, you know, across the country, go different places that I didn't necessarily want to go, but I knew it was God's call. But those things I'd already renounced in my heart when I, when I made a commitment to serve the Lord as a teenager, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And I meant that, and sometimes you are asked to do those things. So any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, following Christ doesn't mean that you give away all of your money, you give away all your property, you, you give away, or you move, you know, like I said, to be a missionary. It doesn't mean that. But you have to truly arrive at a place as a Christian that you would. If it was asked of you. And otherwise you end up like the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Christ. He says what must I do to follow? He says sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. And he backs up. He goes whoa. I didn't know that was what you were going to say. I thought you were going to talk to me about like this commandment or that. I didn't know you were going to actually ask me to sacrifice this and give this up. And here's the thing I've learned about God. I've never once sacrificed or given anything up for God that he hasn't repaid me back for. Anytime I've ever given anything up for God on the other side of it, I was always more blessed. 
And, and sometimes it was just not realizing what really mattered to you. And you thought this was so important. And then when you gave it up, God blessed you on this, on this side. Over and over and over again, he, is, he has done that. But in your heart, listen, in your heart, there's nothing off the table. Do you understand that? As a believer, there is nothing off the table when you are a believer. There's not any compartment. There's not any compartment of your life that you get to look at God and say, God, I'll sacrifice this, I'll give this up, but don't touch this now. This is mine. Because I can tell you, if you start doing that, that's exactly where he's going to want to go. You know why? Because that's an idol in your life. That, that's an obstacle. That thing has higher priority in your life than he does. So nothing, nothing can be off the table. Everything has to be, you know what, God? I would do anything, sacrifice anything if you ask because I'm living for you. This life is not my, my, my real true life. This is not my home. I'm living for eternity. This life is short. I'm going to be with you for eternity. I don't mind laying anything down, giving it up. Now, it's easy to sit here and say all of those things. But as a, as a believer, you will regularly encounter things in your life that are a hindrance between you and God, and you've got to make a choice. And people make their choice every day. Nope, not going to give up that relationship too valuable to me. Don't care that the Bible says it's sin. Not giving that up is too valuable to me. That you've made your choice. You've made your choice. And I'm not going to start calling stuff out because then I'm going to leave you out and you're going to think you're okay. And then this, you know, every, Everybody has something to answer for, right? So what about 2023 and beyond? Okay, well, what do we do? How do we prepare? Number one, we must begin to count the cost. As I said, I believe we're in a, a counting the cost season right now. I would love it. My dream, if I could have like a, <clears throat> a dream sermon today would be, if you're married in here, I would love for you to go home this afternoon and have this conversation as a married couple. Like, what might Christianity cost us, cost our family in the next 10 years? What, what changes might we need to begin preparing to, to make potentially as a family? I think that would be a very valuable conversation for families to have. But we need, we need to figure out as believers how much we're really willing to pay. How much do we really want to live for God? How much do we really want to serve God? God, because we've all had things in our life that were worth it to us, right? I mean, if you could think of anything in your life that you just sacrificed for, and, it, and you loved it so much, and you were so into it, that it didn't even really feel like sacrifice. You ever had things like that? When I was growing up, for, for me, that was basketball. I loved basketball. I, it, was my, it was my life for so long. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the era watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls win six championships. Come on, you know, not, nothing better than that. Uh, and if, you're, if you are too young to remember that and you think LeBron is the best player, I'm sorry. You just need to go back and watch some old documentaries. You, you don't understand. But I grew up in that era, and so I was just, I was a huge basketball fan. And we had a dirt court at the house. You know, you'd be bouncing and hit a root or something and fly off. And I, that's where I grew up playing. And my parents put in a concrete pad, and I started playing basketball. I was out there every single day. Every single day I was out there. It was my dream to dunk, you know. I'm barely six foot. I, I wanted to dunk. You know, I wasn't even six foot then. And so in junior high, right, I think around the sixth grade, um, 
I started going to Carter C. Raymond in LeCount, Carter C. Raymond Junior High School in, in LeCount, where I, where I live. And I wanted to play basketball so bad. I wanted to be on the team. No, it didn't matter. I was short, you know, and wore glasses. You know, it didn't matter. I wanted to play so bad. And I was practicing home all the time. And uh, there, there wasn't a single white guy on the team. I was like the only, I was, and I wasn't even on the team. There, there wasn't a single white guy on the team. I wanted to play so bad. And I remember the coach, his name was Coach Thompson, awesome guy. Uh, he taught one of my classes. And so every day after the assignment or whatever, I would go up to his desk and I would start making deals with him. I was like, all right, coach, if, if I can make 10 free throws in a row, you have to let me on the team. And we would talk, and he was like, all right, today at PE, if you could make 10 free throws in a row, I'll let you on the team. So I went, and, you know, I missed. I didn't make it. And then one day I challenged him to one-on-one. I'm like, we're going to play one-on-one. If I could beat you in one-on-one, you know, he's like 6'2", big guy, you know. He beat me in one-on-one. And then one day we were in class, and I said, okay, if I could do 100 push-ups, if I could do 100 push-ups, you have to let me on the team. And he was like, all right, if you could do 100 push-ups, I'll let you on the team. So I got on the floor right there in class. I'm doing, I don't know how many I pushed out. It wasn't 100. <laughs> and, but, I, but something clicked in him in that moment, and he was like, okay, if, if you really want it this bad, I, I'm going to let you on the team. So the team was 7th and 8th graders, but I was in the 6th grade. And so I just think he felt sorry for me, or, you know, he liked me or something. And he let me on the team. And I only played one game because I transferred schools right after that. So it really, almost wasn't really worth it. But... I played one game, and the, and the game I remember was we had this, and I don't know if you remember being in the, you know, that young, but to me, those seventh and eighth graders that were on that team, I thought they were 25 years old. I mean, there was a couple of them that could dunk. I was like, I, I didn't feel in, even in the same realm as them, but there, I remember one of our guys, <clears throat> who's one of the best players on our team, he was dribbling down the court, <clears throat> and the coach turned to me, and he said, the guy's name was Ryan Turner. He was one of the best players on our team. And the coach turned to me and he said, hey, I want you to go in for Ryan. And I had a lot of thoughts that went through my mind. I think one of the thoughts was, I think he thinks I'm as good as Ryan. Because he wouldn't put me in for Ryan if he didn't think that. So I was so excited. I was not, like, scared about it. I was so excited. I jumped off the bench. And Ryan is dribbling down the court. And I'm running beside Ryan saying, hey, Ryan, I'm in for you. Ryan, I'm in for you. Because I didn't understand that you had to wait for a dead ball. I, that was, I hadn't got there yet, so I didn't understand. So, like, the, the game is in action. I'm running beside him. Hey, Ryan, I'm in for you. And he's like, what? He's dribbling the ball. What are you? And then the coach grabbed me. He's like, no, come. He's like, I should have told you. Okay, you, you have to wait for a dead ball. So I finally got in the game. Uh, I think I took like one shot and I got, it was blocked. And then I think I stole the ball though one time. And I just remember after the game, all I could remember was like, man, I stole the ball. It was the best game. I was so excited. And right after that, I transferred to Forest Hill Academy out in Forest Hill, Louisiana. And that next year I had a coach that started working with me, you know, to play basketball. He really took a lot of interest in me. And that, that seventh and eighth grade team that we had, we went 18 and one the next, we lost one game the next year. And then we played with that group all through high school. So that season of my life was so focused on something like basketball. As, as I asked you before, well, what was it for you? For me, it was basketball. You know, I just loved it. There was, and it didn't even feel like a sacrifice. It didn't even feel like a sacrifice. It didn't matter what I had to do. I would practice at school 
for hours, then with our team, I would come home and I would practice more at home. Sometimes till it was dark outside, just shooting over and over, playing over and over again. I was so obsessed with it. And so when I look at my Christianity, I have to evaluate it against something like that. I have to look, I have to go, well, well, you know, no, I love God. I mean, I live for God. I go to church. That's, but yeah, but what about compared to that thing in your life that you really have loved and really have sacrificed everything for? Because sometimes in a person's life to find true devotion, you have to look elsewhere than their faith and it shouldn't be that way. Sometimes if you want to really find out what a person is passionate about, you have to look at their hobbies. You have to look at their business. You have to look somewhere else in their life to find true devotion in their life. And it shouldn't be that way. So in 2023 and beyond, I'm encouraging you, I'm encouraging us as believers to really sit down and count the cost and go, am I as passionate about this as I should be? If not, I need to repent. I need to spend time with God. I need to search this thing out. Because I can get that passionate about other things, so I ought to be that passionate about the Lord and about the things of God. There's nothing else in your life that deserves that level of devotion. Amen? So number one, I think to prepare, we need to count the cost. Number two, I think we must be okay with being misunderstood. We must become very comfortable with being misunderstood because you will not always get to explain yourself in this culture. There will be people that hear us as the church say things and they'll misunderstand. Oh, they're like, oh, well, you, you, don't, you, don't, you must not love people. Oh, you hate people. Oh, you're a bigot. You're this. We have to be okay with being misunderstood. You know why? Because I'm not living for your approval. Even though I, I love you as human beings, I love this world, I am living for God's approval. So sometimes we, we're going to have to get really comfortable as believers with being misunderstood. Matthew 12, 22, Jesus experienced this. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, well, it's only... By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So Jesus was doing a good thing, but there was a group of people that misunderstood what he was doing, and they called it a bad thing. I see this all the time in the Christian world, where Christians are trying to do a good thing, something in line with Scripture, but a large majority of people are looking at it and say, no, that's a bad thing. That you think that way, that you believe that way, that you, would, that, you would call, that you would think this way on this subject. But God calls it a good thing. So we have to be okay and we have to get really comfortable with being misunderstood. Again, I don't think this is something that the church at large is used to. Because everybody, of course we want the, the world to love us and accept us. And, and we, we're, not, we're not mean-spirited. We're not hateful. We love people. We want people to know that. So it, it, it feels bad when... You know, when people aren't understanding that, they're misunderstanding that. But look, you're not going to always get a chance to explain yourself, and you're not going to always get a chance to win your critics over. You know, you may have to make decisions with your children that family members don't understand, the school doesn't understand. You may have to make decisions that people don't understand, and you have to be okay with being misunderstood. And that can be an uncomfortable place 
to be in. But I love Psalm 27.1. This was David's mentality on it. He said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In other words, if, if God is for me, he's my light, he's my salvation. Why would I be afraid of what a person thinks? They're just a person. They're just a human being that has to stand before God and answer for their own sins. Why would I worry what they think? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamps against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident because of the Lord. And I think that the church is going to have to begin to take that position of God's on my side. I'm in line with the word. I can't worry about every person who's mad at me or doesn't understand why I'm doing things the way I'm doing it or living the way that I'm living it. I can't take time to worry about every person who doesn't understand what I'm doing or, or why I'm going the route that I am. And look, as we move more into the minority in this nation, I've already given you the, stati- the statistics on that earlier in the in this sermon series. As we move more into the minority of Christians in this nation, it's going to be more misunderstood, this lifestyle. This path. And especially if you live according to the Bible and don't compromise your beliefs. It's going to be more misunderstood. Number three, and this kind of goes with number two, is we must die to being liked. And this is difficult in a culture that has been trained to live for likes. Everybody posts their favorite social media thing for what? Likes. Well... You know, that post didn't get that many likes, and that trains you. Well, nobody was interested in that. I'm going to post this. I saw my friend posted this, and they got like 35 likes. So I'm going to post that now and see if I can get a few. And this culture has been trained to live for likes, the approval of other people. But look at what Jesus said, John 15, 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And I love that phrase for this particular because what he's saying is, he said, I was called to suffering. I was called to live the difficult life. I was called to be hated by man, spit on, mocked. And you're my servant. And the servant is not greater than the master. In other words, why do you think you would have it any easier than me? You're called to live the same life that I lived. I'm the master. You're the servant. He said, the servant is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And again, in America, we have by and large, we have avoided this. But I do think that that's changing. Not to the degree that Jesus experienced it or the apostles, but it's, it's, it's changing just a little. And I, for one, have been a little bit shocked sometimes at how little persecution it takes to run believers off sometimes. And, and, I, and so we could sit and talk about why that's an issue. You know, is it because they were never that committed in the first place? Is it because they really just are that soft? I don't know. We could, we could sit and talk about that. But sometimes I'm shocked you know, I've, I've literally talked to Christians that have walked away from God because they didn't get a prayer answered. 
Look, if, if that's the kind of relationship you have with God is, well, I prayed for this and it didn't happen, so I'm out. <laughs> Look, I don't want to make fun of you this morning, okay? But that, that is a really shallow faith. That is a really, really shallow faith. And I hope you don't treat your spouse like that. <laughs> well, I asked you to clean dishes. You didn't, so I, bye. I'm gone. <laughs> well, well, dang. I mean, what happened to the death do us part thing, you know? You didn't mention nothing about not doing the dishes. Wish I'd known that up front. Yeah, you know, sometimes it doesn't really take much to run Christians off. They get disappointed over small things. I've seen people leave the faith because they, they had a bad interaction with somebody at church. Somebody was rude to them at church. Well, you know, I, those Christian people, I, I was there, you know, the pastor walked by, and he, he didn't even wave me. Well, the pastor probably didn't see you. I mean, the pastor's not rude. I can tell you, you know, the pastor probably didn't even see you. It, but people run for different small things, petty things. And all I'm saying is we're going to have to be more resilient than that. We're going to have to have a resiliency about us because that's not going to fly in the decades that are, that are coming. We're going to have to have a hardness to us, a resiliency that is, says no matter what comes, no matter how hard it gets, no matter how mad people get, no matter what it costs me, I'm all in. That's going to have to be where we're at. So Jesus told us, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And number four, we must be willing to suffer. Now, this is different than what we've been talking about in, 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 up to this point. Must be willing to suffer. And I, and I use that word because it's a biblical word. Romans 8, 18, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As believers, sometimes we have to be willing to suffer because we know what's ahead. We know what's coming ahead. If you, if you raise small children, you know all about this. If you had multiple kids in diapers and, and they're not sleeping through the night and they're vomiting and they're sick and you're suffering through that season, why? You're looking ahead to a day when they're going to be past that and they're going to grow up into adults and they're going to, they're going to be a, a beautiful part of your family. And so you, you embrace the suffering and you go, well, this is a season and we're going to get through it. But I'm okay with the suffering because I, I see where we're going and I know the sacrifice is paying off. This is what Paul said. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And here's what I see Paul saying in that. He's saying, with, with what God has planned for us, okay, with, with what's coming in eternity and, and the goodness of God and what he did on the cross. When I, when I consider all that, he said it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate to even mention the sufferings. And, and I gave this example before, but I, I remember because it illustrated it so well. It would be like if you owed, you know, if someone gave you a massive inheritance, you know, they gave you like $500 million and they just blessed you with it and you're, you're so happy and thankful, you know, your grandpa blessed you with something. And then you guys go out for lunch and when it comes time for the lunch, you know, he passes the bill to you. And you're like, well, I mean, well, I got to pay for this. You know, this, you, you ate yours, ate mine. We're going to pay for each other. It would be so inappropriate to mention that, right? After what he did to mention, hey, 
were you expecting me to get lunch? Because that would be weird to mention that. That would be very inappropriate because of what God did, or because of what your grandpa did. This is the same. This is what Paul's saying. He said, I consider the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing. In other words, it's inappropriate to even mention them in the same context as we talk about what God's done for us. But I don't think a lot of Christians think like that. I think a lot of Christians dwell, a lot of Christians dwell on their suffering. And they could give you a long list of their sufferings. And they could talk for hours about how bad they've got it and how this person mistreated them. And forgive and forget? Oh, no, it's in the lockbox. I got it up here. Like I could, and I could retell the story. Something happened 20 years ago. I could retell it today like it happened yesterday. But Paul said, I don't even consider the sufferings because I know what's coming. And these things are so light when compared. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you. Look, it's a gift. This is how he sees it. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's how the apostles saw it. He's not putting on here. He's not, he's not faking this. They considered it a blessing to be able to suffer alongside Christ because they, they got to be partners in his suffering. That's how they, they viewed it. If you remember in the book of Acts, there was an occasion where they were called in. They were beat with whips. And it says they left rejoicing. That they were honored to be able to share in the same suffering as Christ. Now, I don't go seeking out suffering, by the way. I'm not like looking for suffering. But I'm willing to suffer for Christ if necessary. And I'm not talking about physical harm because I just don't see that anytime soon in America. I don't see that. I'm not saying it'll never be the case, but we're not talking about that. I'm not expecting physical suffering uh, in, in that way anytime soon in America. But what about our jobs, businesses, places of employment? What about our schools, even churches, social circles? These your, your faith and your standard of living for God will begin to impact these things. And so I think we have to have the mindset of, yeah, I'm called to suffering. Oh, well, this hurts a little bit. This cost me something. You're called to that. You're called to that. Christ was called to it. He walked it, and you're called to walk it just like he did. 